You are listening to Life Improvement Radio on the Helium Radio Network. The following is a special edition of the Aaron's Opinion Podcast. Uh, right here uh, on Life Improvement Radio, as I say, or wherever you get a podcast. And I'm calling it a special edition because I specifically did not interview this person. And this is posted at a very, very unusual time for a very specific reason. Let's get into it. So, do you guys remember my interview with James Blaise, a lawyer, an attorney from Oklahoma? Um, And I believe that episode was called Justice with James or something like that. Um, Well, over the months, past few months, James and I have been speaking off and on. And he has put together a seminar. And basically in this seminar, he will talk to you about a variety of legal matters concerning the blind and visually impaired community around the world. Um, And basically we held a, James held a Zoom meeting Um, And he just spoke about a wide range of issues. Um, But the takeaway point of all of this is that knowledge is power and you are your best advocate. So that is the title of today's episode. Um, And I asked James in writing for permission to publish this episode here at Aaron's Opinion, uh, basically on his behalf. And he has granted me that permission, that privilege. And we know each other well from my podcast. Um, So basically, you know, just like any other episode, um, you know, sit back, relax and enjoy this one. But just want to let you know that it's a very special recording. And the reason I'm posting it now um, is really because this information needs to get out now. And technically speaking, James was not a guest on my podcast. So it's kind of a different different version on, on this episode of Aaron's Opinion. James was not a guest. I was actually guesting in his meeting, to which he's given me permission to retransmit here on Aaron's Opinion, um, because it's so valuable that the, that the world gets this knowledge and, and understands what's going on. I think I ask a question in, in the meeting, and um, maybe some of you who are listening to this will recognize some of the names of some of the people who raise their hand and ask questions during the meeting. But really... Um, James did an outstanding job. So I don't want to bore you um, with the intro. I'm not going to make a big a big introduction for this one because, as I say, it's a special edition of Aaron's Opinion. Um, and I'm, I'm not doing an outro. So you're just going to hear me talk right here. Then you're going to hear the meeting. And then that's it. Um, and, oh, and the reason why this is, and this is not going to be on YouTube because James didn't, Uh, send over a video, which I think is fine. I think that we can get through this conversation just with audio. And really, we we, we don't need video for this one. And again, it's not technically an episode with me interviewing someone like you guys are used to. It's really an episode where I participated basically in someone else's meeting, to which, as I already said, I'm repeating myself, we've been given the, the permission and privilege to retransmit here at Aaron's Opinion. So anyway, just remember, Um, That if you like the episode, share it, Uh, especially share it with people who need to hear this information. That would be the most helpful thing of all. So don't forget, uh, today's episode of Aaron's Opinion, 
Uh, we're going to be speaking with and, and in a meeting with James Blaise, but he'll, of course, introduce himself in, in the recording. And don't forget, everybody, share the episode. And after this special edition, uh, we'll be back every every Thursday, as I like to say, at 1200 New York. But anyway, you guys are all over the world. So just keep following the podcast. I really appreciate the support. Okay? And don't forget, everybody, um, knowledge is power, and you are your best advocate. You're listening to Aaron's Opinion on Life Improvement Radio and the Helium Radio Network. Okay, folks. Well, I want to welcome everybody to the seminar. I appreciate spending your Saturday with me. Um, hopefully, it's going to be worthwhile. Um, everybody did receive the text packet they requested, which is essentially just going to cover everything that we're going to talk about just in more detail. The whole intent behind the text packet was to be able to kind of give you a glimpse of what the laws say and just summarize them in a way that is not full of legalese. I know statutes can be full of legal terms and it can be confusing. And it's a lot easier to be able to use them whenever you need them if uh, they are um, broken down into plain terms. So before I get started, I do want to thank a couple people for helping put this seminar together. Uh, they help with different parts, whether it's getting the word out, telling uh, others about it, putting in social media, helping with different research. So I want to thank M. Stevenson, Katie Lester, Kirsten Miller, Vaughn Graham, and uh, Gail Richardson. Thank you so much for helping make this happen. I do appreciate it. Um, so the reason we created the seminar, but let's backtrack for a second, is that how many times have you seen this on social media or have you heard this? Let's say that you're somebody with a disability, whether you're blind or you're in a wheelchair, and you book an Uber. You're getting ready. You have all your stuff. Your backpack or your briefcase. You book your trip. Ready to go. You have to be somewhere at a certain time. You let the driver know, hi, my name is blah, 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 and I have a disability, whether it's a wheelchair or I have a service animal with me. It text back, no problem. You tell them where you are, where you're standing, what you look like. They pull up to the curb. You walk towards the car, they leave. First thought in your mind is, why would they leave? They can't do that to me. They're discriminating against me. You're in a restaurant. You're gonna have dinner with your friends or you're going for an appointment with a client. Same thing happened. You walk in, you ask to be taken to the table where your friends are, where your client is, and the manager stops you. Excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am. You can't come in, you have to go. We don't allow service animals in here, or we don't have a suitable place for you to sit with a wheelchair. You need to leave. When these kinds of incidents happen, the first thing that we all think about is not, hey, um, according to this statute, you're violating my rights. The first thing that we all think about is, I want to sue you. You violated, and this is the genesis for the seminar, you violated my ADA rights. The reason I created this seminar, which is really more of a conversation, is because the ADA is a great law. It's a landmark law. And it has a lot of accompanying statutes, but it doesn't cover everything. And the problem is, losses are expensive. They're unpredictable, and they take a lot of time. And a person could have discriminated against you, but if you don't apply the right law when you try to file the lawsuit, 
Matt Judge is going to toss the Boston out faster than Tom Brady throwing the ball with the defensive end bearing down the middle. And so what can you do? If you don't have the means to be able to afford an attorney, if you don't want to go to court, well, there's going to be three points to this entire conversation. And this is point number one. Knowledge is power and you are your own best advocate. Why? Because only you know how much you're going to fight. Only you know how much time you're going to be willing to spend trying to right this wrong. Only you know how much money you're going to try to find an attorney to help you represent, to be able to go to court. Only you know how much time you're going to be given to this problem and try to rectify. Only you know how much you were wrong. There's a lot of great organizations out there. And trust me, I actually want to say a little shout out to them because some of them are here today. The Alaska Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. There's Guide Dogs for the Blind. The Washington Guide Dogs for the Blind Alumni. Guide Dogs, uh, Guiding Eyes rather, for the Blind. The NOPBC, the SBTC, the ARC of El Paso, and Aaron's Opinion. A lot of organizations do great things, but organizations have limits. They have charters they have to adhere to. They have limited funds they can only use. So they can help you and they can help you advocate but they can't do everything for you, nor can they help everybody. And the best way to help yourself is by understanding the law, by knowing what those laws, what protections they afford you and what rights you have under them. And this is where I come in. So to give you a little background about myself, my name is James Blaze and I'm currently living in Oklahoma. I'm originally from Texas, but I'm licensed to practice in Oklahoma. Now, I'm not going to give you personal legal advice because most of you live in jurisdictions I'm not licensed to practice, but I do have an understanding of the law. And the whole point of this conversation is to give you that edge, to give you that knowledge that will allow you whenever you deal with those situations, like the ones we we're talking about with Uber or the restaurant, to be able to protect yourself. You know how disarming it is if you're the offending party or even if you're a lawyer? And you walk in and you say, hi, my name is. And by the way, what you did is wrong because it violates this statute and this law. They know they can't take advantage of you. They know that you know your rights. And even if you don't go to lawyers, there's a good chance they're going to write to rectify that wrong. Because most people think, hey, if you're advocating for somebody who's disabled or if you're a disabled person, I'm going to try to do what I can because they don't know the law. They don't know better. But you will and you do. And guess what? To advocate, you don't have to go to law school. You don't have to have a law degree. You don't have to be a licensed attorney. You just have to have the passion and the knowledge that can help you get there. This is why this is entitled, Knowledge is Power, and you are your own best advocate. So the ADA, like we talked about, is a landmark statute because it was the first federal statute that completely covered disability rights. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973 preceded it, but that was very minimal. The ADA was the first one that truly encompassed a lot of areas. Many of you can see that from the text packets that were uh, emailed. But there's a lot of other laws that are just as impactful and that are important for you to know. Again, knowledge is power. You have it, you can use it. You don't, unfortunately, a lot of things happen because of that. And I'm not going to speak, speak ill of the rest of my attorneys 
friends, and other colleagues, because most of us work really hard. We do try to help. Unfortunately, just like in any other profession, there are lawyers who will do the very minimal. And if you don't know the law, well, they're going to use that against you. And also opposing counsel. If the person representing you doesn't know the law, then the odds of you helping yourself are pretty slim. However, if you know it, you're guaranteed to have a fair chance. And this is what it's all about. So I'm not going to go through every statute that I included in the text packet because that would take a really long time. But I do want to go over some of the main points. So let's talk about education. So for education from grades K through 12, the main law that's applicable is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or IDEA. Now, for this law, the second point that I want you to remember in this conversation, I guess I'm calling it a conversation, not a seminar, because let's face it, <laughs> there's not a huge PowerPoint, there's not a lot of slides, it's not a lecture, because there's some of you on here that know these laws better than I do. But Again, I just want to try to help you understand them as a whole and what they mean. Okay, so let's go back to idea. The second point that I want you to remember in this conversation is that a lot of the biggest problems with laws that affect those who are disabled have a lot of ambiguities. There's a lot of terms that are written in the law that sound good, but unfortunately there's no definite to them. There's no finite quantity to define them and it makes it to where it gives an opportunity for things to happen. What do we mean by that? For instance, idea. One of the main points of that law says that each school district, public school district, is required to provide free, appropriate public education to each individual through an individualized education program. Think about that, appropriate. Well, there's no way to define appropriate. The law doesn't specify what appropriate means. So what happens a lot of times when there are issues, when the school district does not provide the necessary services, special uh, education services to a student, is because it says appropriate. What's appropriate for me is not appropriate for you. What services I need are not the same services that you need or your child needs. And this is consistent, and we're going to talk about this as we go through one of the biggest problems with disability laws. Um, they are required to provide special ed services. They are required to have the IEP, which is the Individualized Education Program, to happen once a year at least. They are required for that to be done by knowledgeable people. Again, the problem that people run into is that there's no way to quantify what appropriate means and what every individual needs is different. Some people are more advanced. Some people need more help. Some people have learning disabilities. Some people have a physical disability and the needs differ. So it's important to know that if you are the parent of a child or if you have a child or if you're advocating on behalf of a child that you understand that what you need to fight for under this statute, which applies to all public schools across the country, is what's appropriate for them. And only you know what's best for them. This is why it's important to know this law. Because you know how your child learns. A lot of schools have thousands of kids 
they're not going to take the time necessarily. And there's a lot of great school districts out there. But when it comes about where the school district does the very minimal, it's going to come to you to fight for them and to understand that you need to let the school district know that they need to do what's best for them. Uh, there was a question that was included. Uh, if you all remember when you signed up for this conversation, I ask you to please include questions that you had about any topic covered. And one of the questions was about homeschooling. Somebody asked if the school, the public school district where they live, if they homeschool their child, what does the ADA cover and what does the ADA require for them to do? Great question. But again, the ADA is not applicable. Idea is. Now, to answer this question, if you homeschool your child and it's strictly homeschool, you're not using any resources from a public school district, Idea does not cover you, nor does the ADA. You are on your own. If, however, you use any resource from the public school, then IDEA applies, and this public school district has to provide services, special ed services, to you. Now, keep in mind, a lot of the public schools are dictated and regulated by local laws, not federal laws. But if you homeschool your child and you do use any resource from the school district, then they are required to provide you with special ed services. So I hope that answers the question for whoever sent that in. Now, what happens after you leave K through 12? Well, when you go to post-secondary schools, there are two statutes that are applicable. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and Title II of DADA. Now, once again, let's go back to what I said for, the, for IDEA. What is the biggest problem? Ambiguity. Because for the Rehabilitation Act 1973 in Title II, one of the biggest points is that school uh, post-secondary schools are required to provide a reasonable request. They're supposed to approve what's considered to be reasonable. What's reasonable to you might not be reasonable for me. One thing that people need to know, and this is one of the biggest differences between K through 12 and post-secondary school, is that if you go to a college or university or trade school or community college, they don't have to seek you out. You are required to tell them, hi, my name is, and I have this disability. By law, they can ask you for documentation. They can ask for proof to substantiate that you have the disability that you claim. K through 12, they can't do that. As long as you have a certified disability or certifiable disability, the school district has to provide uh, an appropriate public education. Post-secondary, not so much. Also, and this is another major theme that we're gonna see across all the statutes, is that any request that you make to the school for yourself, whether it's in testing, housing, uh, whether it's in the classroom, technology, it cannot, let me say that again, it cannot create an undue financial burden or administrative burden on the school. What do I mean by that? Let's use me as an example. I'm totally blind. So when I went to undergraduate in law school, I could ask for extended time on an exam. I could ask to be able to be allowed to use my brown note, which I'm using at the moment in my classroom. However, I could not go up to the dean and say, listen, um, I'm blind. 
So what I want you to do is I want you to pay for a brand new Mac I can use in every single classroom. And I want you to update the testing center to have the technology that I need specifically for just one test. I can do that. By the way, I want you to create, uh, start having a shuttle that can take me from this building to another just because I don't want to walk. Uh, no, you can't do that. It's up to you to understand what reasonable requests you can make that's related to your disability. But they have to be able to be something that's related to it and something you can actually use that you can substantiate. Now, the school can't deny you a reasonable request. Let's go back to me again. I, I could theoretically ask for them to have screen readers on the computers at the testing center because everybody else had access to them. They can't tell me no because it is a certified disability and it is a reasonable request. Um, the other part too is that it's important to remember is that the documentation they can ask for has to be reasonable. So they could ask me for an eye report from a doctor verifying that I'm blind. If you are in a wheelchair, they can ask for certified documentation from a doctor proving that you are unable to leave the wheelchair as to what caused you to be in a wheelchair. However, they can't tell you, I want you to provide me with documentation of your medical history since you were born. That's not allowed. They also can't say, I'm sorry, uh, because you're making us give you additional time, we're going to charge you an additional amount. That's not allowed either, because they're now making you pay more than the rest of your peers because of your disability. And now that's discrimination. Now, I want to talk about housing. Um, housing is an issue that's brought up a lot. I've seen this as an attorney, and I've seen this as an advocate. Now, housing is covered under the Federal Housing Act in Title III of DADA. And the important part about housing, once again, is you can ask to make modifications to your home, to your apartment, but it has to be related to your disability. What I mean by that, if you're in a wheelchair, you can ask a landlord, can you please put in a ramp? That's reasonable. If you can't if you're living in a second floor, they don't have an elevator. Can you please put in an elevator? That's reasonable as well. However, I'm blind, so I can't say, hey, listen, I want to be able to enjoy the game on Sunday, so I need you to put a $2,000 sound stereo in my house so I can watch the game. Uh, no, that doesn't work that way. Um, and one important fact to remember about housing is that if you're living in a place, let's say you're living in an apartment and you've been living there and your first contract is up and you renew your contract, whether it's an apartment, a house, a condo, if you need to make additional modifications related to your disability, the way that the law is stated and written, you and the landlord have to split the cost of the additional modifications. If you first move into a place, as long as the, the request that you're making, the modification you're making to where you're living or the common area is on the landlord. After that, you have to split the cost. If the landlord puts the cost and you don't, and then you threaten to sue them, they're gonna laugh all the way to the court because they're not required to do that. They are only required to pay half. 
Here's the other part too. And this is coming from a question that was sent in. Somebody asked, is a landlord allowed to ask for proof that you have a service animal? The answer is yes. A landlord can ask you for documentation verifying that your animal is a service animal. Now, this is limited. They can only ask you for, for example, documents from the school where you got the dog from. And they can ask you for documents related to see if the dog has a rabies shot or anything that will allow them to know that your dog is up to date. However, they cannot deny you an application because of a dog. They cannot reject your application because of a dog. They cannot throw you out because of a dog. And most importantly, and this is important, a landlord cannot ask you beyond the most minimal requirement for the document. They can say, hey, sure, you have a harness. Can you please show me where you got a dog from? Great, I, got this, I have my ID from the seeing eye, from guiding eyes, from GDB. But the landlord can't say, oh, by the way, I need the entire medical history of the dog and I need to know exactly how they were trained. They can't do that. And you can flat out reject that. Also, just like we're gonna talk about in a second with transportation, your dog does have limitation once it comes to a landlord. So if you have a dog and you live in an apartment, the dog is exempted from being, you don't have to pay a pet fee, you can't be charged for the dog living with you. However, if your dog decides to misbehave, if your dog is a terror and growls at people, bites people, uh, is tearing up property, by law, the landlord is allowed to either make you pay restitution for the property that was damaged, file a police report, or even evict you. So again, they can't kick you out because of your dog. However, it is incumbent upon you to make sure that your dog is behaving like they're supposed to be. Now we're gonna talk about transportation. Public transportation is covered under Title II of the ADA. And that basically means that wherever you're living, according to the ADA, if there's public transportation, buses have to be made accessible to somebody with a wheelchair. If there's a certain amount of people living in that area, they have to make paratransit available to you. But again, going back to the second point, if you ask a city to make a modification, let's say you're living in a place that doesn't have a bus, if you're in a wheelchair, it's perfectly acceptable for you to ask them to put a ramp in a bus or to make a van available that has a ramp. However, you can't say, I'm sorry, you don't have a bus, so uh, I want a Mercedes to pick me up. Can't happen. Now, I wanna talk about Uber and Lyft because this is very important. I know that there are many of us who have been on here and some of you have seen this too, where Uber chooses to leave you and not pick you up because of your dog or your wheelchair or any other reason. Now, the ADA does not apply in this manner to Uber or Lyft because they're private companies. They're not public transportation. They're not required. However, Lyft and Uber are commercial companies. And it doesn't matter if their driver is an independent contractor. The minute they provide a commercial service, 
and anybody from the public is allowed on their car, they have to abide by the ADA. They have to let you in. And there's been many lawsuits that have been levied against Uber and Lyft for the same reason. But it's important that whenever you confront Uber or Lyft about being denied access to a ride, that you do not use Title II. Title II is only applicable to public transportation, as city buses, air transit, subways, rails, anything like that. Uber and Lyft are just covered because they're commercial entities. It's the same as Greyhound. Greyhound is not considered a public transportation because they're a private entity. Now, what I wanna say, and I know this sounds facetious, but I, I do have to say it to bring some levity. You cannot, and I've seen this before, you cannot threaten to sue your buddy, your neighbor, your grandma, your sister, your nephew, your son, for not taking you in their car and say that I was a violation of your ADA rights. A private car is just like your private home. They cannot hold you accountable if you don't want to take somebody. You cannot sue them for lack of access. You're only allowed to do that for commercial entities or public transportation. Now, the big one, the one that's made a lot of noise lately, the American Carrier Access Act. I know someone uses one. This act basically makes it to where you have to give 48 hours notice to airlines if you have a dog or if you have any requests for an accommodation that requires preparation. Now it's important to know that the same law or the same rule actually from the Department of Transportation makes it illegal for an airline to deny you to fly with them because of a disability or because of your service animal. So you can provide them, they can request 48 hours notice, but an airline can't say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have enough room for you because you have a dog, so you're gonna have to wait. That's blatantly illegal. Also, and this is where we go back to the second point. The law is very ambiguous. There are some definitions as to why they can restrict you not being able to get on a flight because of your service animal, because the dog is too big, because the dog is being disruptive. That's fine. However, and you'll see this in the packet, one of the portions of the law states that an airline can deny you that flight if they believe that your animal poses a safety hazard or if a piece of equipment that you use poses a safety hazard. And this is where it gets, it's a little bit scary because there's no way to substantiate that. Now, the law or the, the rule rather is specific in some senses. They can't deny you having an oxygen tank. They can't deny you being on a wheelchair. They can't deny you being on there with your dog. However, once again, they can deny you if they believe that any of those poses a safety hazard. And that's the problem because let's face it, what is to say that you go on, you have a big old German Shepherd next to you, or you, know, you have a large wheelchair or you have an oxygen tank that some people think is scary. 
and somebody complained, the airline can't ask you to leave the flight. And this is a big problem because I, there's no way to fight it. They can say, we think it poses a safety hazard. Now, the only part that is defined and there's no way to combat it, and I think it's appropriate, is that if you're somebody who has a physical disability or if you have a dog, you're not allowed by FAA standards to sit on an exit row. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if you're in a wheelchair and you, you need it to be able to move around, or if you have a dog sitting in front of you, you don't want to be in an exit in case of an emergency. Somebody's going to trample your dog or you're going to be trampled. Um, so that makes sense. Now, as far as the documentation they can ask, there is a form if you have a service animal that you have to fill out and you have to provide to the airline. Now, this is reasonable. However, and there's been instances of this, they cannot charge you an additional amount for carrying your dog, your wheelchair, or any equipment that you need because of your disability. And also, they can ask you to uh, pay additional charges. They can't make your fare higher, and they can't make additional charges simply because of that. That's blatantly illegal. They can't also ask you for documentation beyond 48 hours. They can't say, oh, you're gonna fly with us? Yeah, we're gonna need that a week out. No, the law specifically states they can only ask for that 48 hours out. James. Yeah. Cut in really quickly. Sure. Um, this is Kristen Miller. I helped James do some of the organizing for this. And speaking of the documentation, the form that the airlines can ask you for, um, I do have a copy of that and I am willing to share that copy because sometimes it is a little difficult to get a hold of. Um, so if anybody is interested in that, if you would like to email the seminar email, I can make sure to send that to you. Thanks, Kristen, that helps. So yeah, if anybody wants it, it's definitely there. Um, the other part too is, I wanna say that airlines can ask you, especially because this is important in a lot of jurisdictions, they can ask you for a rabies certificate. So that's mm -hmm. another um, document they can ask for. But other than that, they can't ask you for uh, heartworm medicine. They can't ask you for other shots, but rabies is allowed under the law. That's actually on the form. They ask you for date of rabies and date of expiration of rabies. There you go. See, it's important to know this stuff. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna move on to voting. And what I'm gonna do uh, guys, I'm gonna, wraps up with voting, and then if anybody has any questions, we can answer them. I know I've gone through this a little bit quickly, but a lot of the information's in the text packet, and I just didn't want to go over and over again since you already have it in front of you. So voting, there are two voting laws. There's the National Voter Registration Act. That is for states. That makes it possible for anybody with a disability to be able to vote at the local level. A state, city, um, a municipality cannot prevent you from voting because of your disability. They have to make available to you a means to be able to vote because they have to make it possible for everybody who's a qualified voter to have access and the opportunity to be able to cast their vote. 
The other one is the Voter Accessibility for the Elderly and Handicapped Act. That specifically says that for federal elections, so presidential, Congress, um, and in some instances, judges, you are, the, wherever people are voting, they do have to make it accessible for you to vote. Now, I need to be clear on this. This doesn't mean that they need to make a machine accessible to you specifically. It just means that they need to make sure that you have a way of voting, whether it's casting a vote through a machine that talks, whether it's having large print on a ballot, whether it's allowing you to have somebody fill in the ballot. One way or another, when it comes to both state and federal election, these two statutes make it possible for you to vote. And if there's not a means at your local uh, place to vote, then whoever is responsible for that area has to find a way to make it possible for you to be able to do so. Otherwise, it's blatantly illegal. So I want to answer a couple of questions that were sent in, and then I'm going to open this up for questions. Um, I didn't talk about the ADA specifically as a whole because we covered it with the other statutes involved. Um, and I included the Rehab Act and the other statutes that we talked about. You can go through it in the text packet again. They cover a lot, but it's important to know these laws because they do cover other aspects of our lives. Um, somebody asked if the ADA covers if your guide dog is attacked by an unleashed dog. And the answer is no. The ADA does not cover that. Local laws would do that. So that would be either your city, your county, your state. The ADA is not reflective on that. And there's no portion of it that protects your dog. Now, there is one exception and it's rare, but if you are on federal property, let's say you go to the Capitol or you go to a courthouse or um, you go to the airport, post office, if a dog that belongs to a law enforcement agency or a dog that is used for some purpose, drug sniffing, bomb detection, something like that, if they attack your dog, then DADA would cover because it's happening on federal property and uh, your dog is a service animal, therefore you are protected. Aside from that, you would have to rely on local laws. And the other question that was sent in was somebody was asking if the ADA would make it possible for you to get into or make it possible for them to get into a facility an assisted living home or retirement home and prevent them from being sent to a government facility. The answer is no. Um, the ADA can make it possible for you if you go to a retirement home or a assisted living home that is accessible based on your disability. They have to be able to provide the services that you need. They have to be able to allow you to be able to move freely. But it, under the ADA, there is not a place on the law that makes it possible for you to go into one of those places or those facilities as opposed to a government place. Now, I will say this, if for legal reason, whether it's a conservatorship, a guardianship, uh, whether it's diminished mental capacity, if you are sent to a government facility for one reason or another, the government is required to ensure that whatever facility you are placed in does abide by the ADA and is accessible to you. 
like it is accessible to everybody else, but they can choose which facility to send you to. Okay, folks, I've talked long enough. I really hope that was informative. So if anybody has any questions, please unmute yourself and ask away. We have a few minutes, so I'm open to answer whatever I can. Jessica was in the waiting room. <laughs> Sorry. Um, That's all I had to say. Sorry, it did a show on my end. I'll send him a recording. <laughs> I've got a question. Yes, go ahead. Okay, this is Gail. Um, I'm visually impaired, getting more blind by the day. I live in an apartment complex and they have a pool. Now, their pool has, in order to get into it, a set of stairs that come into the main uh, cement area around it. And I could not see that. So as I was walking in to go to a chair, I fell into the pool. I went to the management to ask them if it was possible to do something like paint a line around the edge of the pool. Because most pools I know have either a little raised edge or a different texture or something so you can tell when you've gotten to the edge of the pool and this one does not. They had me fill out a form for ADA accommodation. I did that. They came back and said to me that the corporate office said that they would do that, but I would have to pay to have that painted line put there and then I'd have to pay to have it removed when I moved from the community. Is that correct? And this is an apartment complex? Is this uh, a community pool of, uh, of residents, like a neighborhood? This is just a regular apartment complex in a neighborhood. It's not a senior community. It's not for, you know, people who are disabled. So about the painted line, um, what they can ask you to do is they can ask you to help pay for the cost of putting it in if, it's the only, if you're the only one requesting for the line to be there. But they cannot ask you for you to remove it. The only time that a landlord can ask you to uh, pay for the cost of removing it is if whatever modification you made to, uh, to a piece of property or to a location um, alters the property. So yes, what I'm saying by that is if you were to go into a pool and you would ask them to add on cement stairs and they weren't there and they have to add those on, that would alter the pool completely. But a painted line, they can ask you to pay for a portion of it, but they cannot ask you to remove it because all they have to do is wash away. So, and it's not an unreasonable request either. So because it's for safety, you can actually request it and um, you can actually file a complaint if they don't. Uh, so the people that just came in, I want to sincerely apologize. Zoom did not alert me at all to y'all being in a waiting room. I will provide you with the recording, but again, I sincerely apologize. I know that some of you were waiting for quite a while. So um, I know the Zoom updated recently and after we got started, it just never notified me. So sorry about that, but please feel free to ask a question if you have one. Uh, may I ask a question? Go for it. Okay, thank you, James. Going back to the airport issue, what does the law say regarding to when blind people are trying to ask for help to get to the gate and they are potentially being forced to go to the gate in a way that is not appropriate to a blind person, such as, yet not limited to, 
being forced to sit in a wheelchair when in fact a blind person can walk. Maybe it's happened to me and I know it's happened to other people around the world. Your response, please. That's a great question, Erin. Uh, so by the ACAA, the airlines are responsible to providing that service to you. They are supposed to provide you the ability to get from your gate to baggage claim, from security to the gate. They are not required to provide you a wheelchair if you don't have a disability that needs one. Um, they are required to ensure that you get from one place to another. When you, when you uh, pay for a ticket, it is incumbent on you though to let them know that you're gonna need help. They're not supposed to seek that out. But if you let the airline know, hi, my name is Aaron, I'm visually impaired. I need some help getting from security to the gate and from the gate to the baggage claim. They are supposed to provide you with somebody that helps you get from point A to point B. They're also required to make sure that the person that's helping you actually does their job. So the way that the statute is written, the airline is responsible for any portion of the air airport they lease, control, or have access to. So if you're United, anywhere that says United in the airport, you're responsible for that. You still have to abide by that law. Also, um, a lot of times they bring the wheelchair, not to be mean, just to cover their basis, because I want to make sure as you can't walk that they can do that. I've, I've had that happen before too, where they want to get me to sit down and just politely decline. Um, but sky captains cannot reject you or cannot reject taking you somewhere because they don't want to, or because they don't like your dog, or because they have to help you with a wheelchair. That is an actual violation of the ACAA, and um, you can file a complaint, and it is discrimination. May I piggyback on that? Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, I have had those same issues myself. Uh, and what is usually said is we are required to provide wheelchairs, but we're not required to provide a meet and assist somebody just to offer you their arm to take you there, which does not sound right to me. And I have complained loudly to Delta about that on a number of occasions. Yes, ma'am. So you can actually okay. use the ACAA for that purpose. You can actually say, now, again, if you told the airline, I'm going to need somebody to take me. In advance. Correct. Then they have to provide that service to you because you are a disabled passenger and it is covered under the rule. If you don't tell the airline, let's say you bought your ticket last second, they're not required to do They can, but they're not required to because you didn't give them enough notice. But if you give them notice, they are required to. And if they don't, they are in violation of the act. And who do you complain to about that? Um, my, Where do my, you file a claim? So my thought would be the first step you can take is you can talk to management. A lot of times there's a disconnect between those at the airport and those who work for the company. So I would file a complaint with them. If that doesn't advance, then I would file a complaint with the Department of Transportation. Because I have gone so far as to meet with the people who are in charge of the wheelchair services for Delta in the Atlanta airport, and I have given them an hour presentation on how you work with the visually impaired, because I had too many people who had no idea what they were doing and didn't give me enough information to help me get safely through the gate. So. I, I worked up a program on it and said to them, if you can't train your people, I can. That's awesome. And, and that's, that's a great approach. Good for you, by the way, for doing that. <laughs> and I think it is. I mean, it definitely, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, that the more we make 
others know. The more we can make everybody around us aware of what the laws are and what they're supposed to do, then the better off we're going to be. Because a lot of times, you're going to get a lot more accomplished if, for instance, you do what you did and, and make a presentation, have a conversation about what the laws are, what they're required to do versus threatening to take them to court and have that airline renamed with your name. That's not going to accomplish much. And a lot of times, it's going to make it worse. If we can educate people, if we can provide them with what the actual law says, if we can explain what the law says and what they're required to do, a lot of times that makes a big difference and it remedies a lot of problems. So does anybody else have any other question? I have a quick question. Go for um, it. What can be done when you're at the airport and you have a guide dog? This happened to me when I had my German Shepherd and I think it was one of the North Carolina airport and um, they have the cars where they drive up and they pick you up and they take you because it's quicker. But she saw me and she saw my shepherd and she's like, I'm not taking you. And I'm like, you have to take me. I'm going to miss my connecting flight. It's the fastest way for me to get there. I don't even know where I'm going. She goes, no, I refuse to take you because you have a dog. And her supervisor was there. But he's like, I'll get you another one. I said, in the meantime, I could possibly miss my plane because she won't take me. They so that's a blatant violation of the ACAA. They are required to take you if you have a connecting flight. Once again, if you made your disability known to the airline, yeah, they cannot deny you uh, the ability to get from one plane to another in a connecting flight, especially because they have to provide a service that allows you to have the same opportunity to fly and get on a plane as the rest of their passengers. So, in that scenario. Unfortunately, you're, you're kind of strapped for time, but I would document it. I would file a complaint with the airline themselves, let them know what happened. I would record it. If that doesn't happen, if they don't remedy that, then I would file a complaint with the Department of Transportation because they can't tell you we're not gonna take you simply because you have a guide dog. Um, it's not their choice. Your guide dog is essentially an extension of who you are. According to the law, the dog is no different than somebody wearing glasses. They can't tell somebody, by the way, you're not allowed on this plane or we're not going to let you get to the next plane because you have glasses. It doesn't work that way. Chocolate. Blood. Chocolate. What do you need? Oh. Okay, so just... Hey, don't eat it in bed, please. <laughs> Crumbs in the bed. Anybody else have There's... a question? Okay. <laughs> I have a, a comment, kind of an experience I had on my last flight, um, and it was nothing discriminating, but going back to the wheelchair thing, um, there was a gentleman that sat in the row I was in who was not able to walk at all, and um, he did not have any feet I believe he was a amputee or something of that nature and when they brought him on the plane they brought him they I guess they have wheelchairs that will fit in the aisle and they brought him onto the plane in a wheelchair they lifted him out of the wheelchair and put him in his seat and then when it was time to deplane they brought another wheelchair and put him in that and 
transported him out to wherever he needed to be. Now, um, so I have seen them do that. I didn't know they could do that, but I saw that happen. Um, also, I've never had an issue with my dogs riding on the cart. So that's a very interesting thing that they, they can't deny you that um, there are ways to sit on that cart that, that you can keep your dog protected. That's, that should never, ever be an issue. Well, here's the thing, though. So the way the law is written is that if they don't want you to be on a cart, they do have to provide you the ability of getting to the plane in a different manner. The end goal is that they have to <clears throat> give you the help you need to be able to get to the gate. So mm -hmm. if they tell you that the cart we have, there's a restriction to the weight or there's too many people, fine, but you still have to provide me whether somebody's arm, um, a different card just for myself. They have to make it possible for you to be able to get to your plane because you are a paid passenger um, about the wheelchair. So one of the aspects of the law is that if the airline has a certain number of seats, and this is in the text packet that I included, um, they are required to carry on a spare wheelchair in the airplane. So that if the one that you have does not allow you to get to a connecting flight or in the event that they need to move you quickly, they have the ability to do that. Now, this is only applicable, um, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but it is in the text packet. It's a certain number of seats for the plane and it's at the airport, it's of a certain size. But in certain instances, they are required to carry their own wheelchairs on the plane. Um, I've never seen them do that. They brought it like a, a sky cap or someone brought it once we landed um, to, to get him off. And I think they, because they took it right back out once they um, had him in his seat, they didn't leave it there. They, they took it back off the plane, but either way, they made sure they got on the plane does anybody else have any other questions? Don't be shy. I had a quick question. Sure, um, go I'm, I'm Walter. I'm visually impaired. And I had a more specific question about the truncated domes that are at the ends of sidewalks. For, for my vision, they're really helpful. And I was wondering if they're covered under the ADA or if they're covered under any like disability laws that they have to be in place at the end of sidewalks. So can you tell me, sorry, can you tell me more about the, I'm not really sure what you're, you're mentioning. Um, but... you, you know, the pads that the yellow dome ah, that are okay. at okay. end gotcha. of each sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So, so like, yeah. Uh, as far as that's concerned, that's actually more of a, a local level. Now, I will say this, okay. um, it can be covered under the ADA in certain instances. So if they make modifications to that area to suit people uh, in different ways, so let's say they add a wheelchair ramp or they add uh, a talking crosswalk, something like that, then uh -huh. they have to be able to make it to where others with disabilities have the ability to use that sidewalk safely. But uh, okay. if there aren't any modifications made to that area yet, or no one's made a request, then uh -huh. 
they're not required to just build it in. For instance, wheelchairs are now federally mandated to be in every new uh, area they built in, in terms of a certain size of a city block or as far as facilities okay. are concerned. That's not required. Uh -huh. However, you can always ask the local area where you're living to please put that in and state because of your disability and they can't deny you that request because it's for safety purposes. And so um, they should be able to include that in. The issue you're gonna have again, is we go back to the reasonable parts that a lot of times when you make requests that are disability oriented, they have to be uh -huh. related to your disability, which obviously it is. But uh -huh. also you can't ask for something that's gonna cost the city or the county a gazillion amount of dollars. I'm being facetious there, but so, you know, you okay. can't be like, I want the, I want the crosswalk to play my favorite song every time I cross the street. I can be like, uh, that's not gonna happen. Uh -huh. But you can't say, listen, I live here. I have this disability. I need this to be safe, please. I can't walk across the street without it. Then they can say, if they say no, then you can file a complaint under the ADA. Okay. Okay. Yep. Great. I Thank have a you. question. Go for it. Um, we're going to shoot a little bit backwards to the airplanes. Um, I, when I first lost my vision, um, and I still have a little bit left, but I was using, and I know different people use different types of canes, but I was using one that that didn't fold like the NFB or the ACB or whichever one, but it wasn't folding. Mm -hmm. And when I got on the plane, they wanted to put it up above or in a closet or somewhere and saying, I cannot have it with me on hand, like beside me. Uh, is they that cannot, true no, or? No, that's blatantly false. Uh, you have to have access to the cane. What they can ask you to do, and this is the only exception to that, you cannot have it to where, let's say you're sitting on the aisle seat. You can't have it to where if you're on the ground, it's extending to the, the aisle because that could potentially be a safety hazard but they cannot ask you to put that on either the uh, storage facility or in a closet. You have to be able to have access to your cane because it is, once again, an extension of you, but also it is not encumbering anybody else and it's not posing a safety hazard. And then in case of an emergency, you need to be able to have access to your cane to be able to move around. So next time that comes up, I will let them know that I'm not going to put it above, and I just want to let you know that I am covered under the ACAA, that you cannot ask me to put a mobility aid that's essential to my need somewhere that I don't have access to it. Um, the only request they can make, aside from the aisle, is let's say the plane is full, they can actually ask you to please not leave it completely extended out on the floor to where it covers from left seat to right seat, because then people can step on it, and that could be a safety hazard but they can't take it away from me. They can just say, can, do you mind just putting it next to your seat or can you fold it up? Um, or you know, can you just hang on to it? But they, they definitely can't take it away from you. Okay, so if it does not fold and you're say at the window seat, can you have it yeah, laying you have beside it. you yep. or floor? I would even recommend for you to put it between the seat and the window. So that's where I was thinking on some of it. One time they, they couldn't, and they said with the reasonable access to it, what if, if what if they say that if you people put their suitcases up and you put the cane up top right in the front, can they ask you to do that? 
No, you have to have access to your cane. Again, okay. you can make it to where it works for you, whether it's between a seat and a window, or you can try to put it kind of like we do with our dogs, where you put it underneath the seat in front of you and in your seat. The only thing I can ask you to do is not put it across so somebody steps on it. It's not a safety hazard. Or if you're in the aisle seat, it can ask you, please make sure it doesn't extend to the aisle. So if somebody's walking to the bathroom or the platitan is walking by, that they don't step on it. But other than that, they can't take it away from you. Um, and I would even go so far as to say that um, if you're in the aisle seat and you feel that you need to have your cane or they're asking you to put it away, I would almost ask the person in the window seat, hey, listen, I want to be able to have access to my cane. Would you mind switching seat with me so that I can put it next to the seat? And most people are going to be accommodating. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but they definitely can't take it away from you. Okay. And then I'm going to jump again back to transportation, like Uber and Lyft or somewhere. Sure. I also have a guide dog. Um, and I had this one person, she picked me up in a brand new vehicle, the hybrid that doesn't make any sound and everything else. And it's got like weight sensors. Mm -hmm. And she wanted my dog on one side next to the floor and me on the other seat behind her for that weight sensors, can you do that? Or can they even request that you put the dog in the back if they the, have a so back area? The, the, the driver can make requests that are reasonable to safety. So let's say that the sensors, if something triggers it, makes it impossible for them to drive you, they can make a request like that. Hey, do you mind putting your dog next on the floor and you on the opposite side? That's, in the re that's a reasonable request. They can't tell you though, you need to put your dog in the trunk. Uh, or, Not necessarily in the trunk, but like in the back, like say a Suburban or SUV that's got that spacing in the back for like groceries or whatever else right. that you put they, in the back. They, um, they can't ask you to put the dog in the very back if there's space between you. Let's say you're on a, you're in a passenger, on the, uh, like he's thinking of the front row, you have the two seats for the driver and the passenger and then you have the row behind it. You can sit there. They can't ask you to put your dog in the trunk or the open trunk, but they can ask you, hey, listen, if you're behind me um, because of an issue with the car, do you mind putting the dog behind a passenger seat or behind the driver's seat and you next to them? They can't separate you from your dog. They can't ask you to put your dog in the trunk or something like that, but they can make reasonable requests for safety purposes. That's where the the the, the law is very vague but it's really also very strict about that they can't make it to where they separate you from your dog but they can make requests that are reasonable when it comes to the safety of everybody involved so now let's say that the car doesn't have any issues and you have your dog at your feet and there's plenty of room the driver can't say i don't like your dog laying there move them they can't do that but again if there's an issue when it comes to the safety of all the passengers or themselves and they can make a reasonable request and saying, listen, if you don't mind, you can sit next to him or you can sit uh, on the other seat and the dog's on the floor and the other end. They can do that. And that's definitely perfectly allowable. Okay. So um, I also do know that um, there is a video that uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind and another uh, Guide Dog School plus Alaska Airlines did for how to work with someone that has a service animal. Um, that's something recent that they did. Okay, that, I mean, so that's, that's great. that's floating around there too. Um, 
So there's some more information. No, that's great. The more information there is out there, the better off everybody's going to be. And again, I think the key to reducing some of these incidents and making it possible for people to have an easier time is education. A lot of times, and I'm not going to say every instance because that's not the case, but a lot of times, a lot of what happens is not knowing what the law says um, by somebody who is committing the act or by somebody thinking that it says one thing and it's another. And a lot of that can be rectified by talking about it and letting them know what it actually does and what it does require. Now, there's going to be some instances, and I want to make sure everybody knows, I'm not saying that it's never okay to sue somebody. When there's blatant discrimination and it is blatant that they violated a statute, as a lawyer and as an advocate, I say go ahead and sue them. However, that should be your last recourse just because of all the issues we talked about lawsuits and also because of how challenging it can be. When you're leaving your fate in the hands of a judge or a jury, it comes down to who can tell the better story. And, and sometimes a lawsuit requires for you to pay the fees of a lawyer for the opposing side. So if you already have a very low income or no income at all, and you sue somebody and you lose, well, you lost your case and there's a good chance you're gonna have to pay the fees of those lawyers. And now you're even in bigger trouble. So this is why I believe that the more informed the public is, the more informed people with disabilities with those who advocate for them are, the better off we're all gonna be and the, the more progress we're gonna make and the less of these incidents we're gonna make happen. Does anybody Jane? else have any other questions? Yep. Yeah, um, this is Gail again. I have advocated for uh, the visually impaired several times in my community. And what I did is I went to the city about putting in those truncated dome pads mm -hmm. and they first didn't want to do it. And when I turned around and said to them, you know, I'm sure that the news media would find it very interesting that you don't have any concerns for the disabled in your community they very quickly turned around and said, let's meet with you and let's put these things in. And at the local mall, they did not have any signage to find your way to the um, train that you could take, the subway train. And I asked them to do putting in the signs and explain that it wasn't just for, you know, people who weren't visually impaired, people who were in wheelchairs and whatever. And they also gave me a hard time. And again, I said to them, please don't make me go to the news media about it because then everybody's gonna know how you treat visually impaired and other disabled people. And they very quickly said they would do that. So the point is that sometimes you don't have to threaten a lawsuit. You can just threaten to let the community know about it. And they- and that's true. So about the mall, by the way, that actually falls, and I covered this in this text package, as part of the Architect Barrier Act, where any commercial entity that's built after, I think it's 1965 or 1970, somewhere in there, um, they have to provide um, accessible signs and accessible uh, different aspects of their property to somebody who has a disability, whether it's sight, hearing, wheelchairs, and so forth. So that's definitely a part of the statute that protects that. But I think you're right. Now, I do want to preface by saying that it's always good to bring the idea that you can talk to the media about what's going on. I'm of the mind that I'd rather have the conversation first with them 
about what happened and explain what's wrong. Now, if they did flatly refuse to do anything about it and don't admit fault, then you can talk about either going the legal route or going the public route, which, I mean, there's been instances where people go on social media and talk about it, and that makes such as a big difference as going to the media itself. But I think the key in a lot of these instances is to be able to have a conversation and be able to talk, because a lot of times, again, they don't do it out of malice. They just don't know. And if you can go up to somebody and say, listen, what you did is wrong because of this and this and this, and I can help you make it better, that's going to make a big difference. And it's going to be disarming. Because unfortunately, it happens too many times where something happens to us or something happens to somebody that we care about, and we just don't hold back. And it makes it really difficult to be able to either walk it back or to be able to walk, work with that person. And as a lawyer, I can tell you that there's been a lot of clients that I've had that their issue has been resolved as easily as just approaching the corporation, the company. Because keep in mind, the companies, a lot of times, there is a disconnect between headquarters and some of their employees. And sometimes they don't receive the training that they do. So I'll go back to what you said, Gail, about helping Delta Airlines being trained to understand what the laws mm -hmm. are. Well, that can happen a lot of times by simply writing a letter. Um, I'm not gonna go into specifics because there's some confidentiality things here, but I can say that I, I have helped somebody who had an issue with a landlord and they did not know that they were required to pay half of the cost of the modification because they've been living there. So what we did is we wrote a letter to the landlord saying, listen, I understand that the law says that I have to pay half of it. I'm willing to do that. I have a grant. And uh, now it's your turn to pay the other half and make sure that these modifications are made because I'm a disabled tenant and it's my right. The landlord said, I did not know that. I understand that now. Let's make the changes. When I denied the accommodation initially, I thought I had to pay for it as a whole. And that was simple as that. And they went and told some other people. So it's word of mouth that makes a big difference. And the reason I caution about the media is because what you say makes a big difference. If you have an issue with somebody and you go to the media and you speak out of anger, and, and I'm not saying this to malign anybody, but we all do it. If you, when you tell your story, if you only go, they're a jerk, how dare them? Why would they do that? It doesn't get anything accomplished. But if you go and talk and say, listen, this is what happened. And this is the reason why it shouldn't happen. And this is why it needs to get better and why. A lot of times you're gonna get the sympathy card, not only that, but it's really difficult to ignore the news media or even social media. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. My very first day at my current job, I was supposed to be in court and I booked an Uber. I have a cane, I no longer have a guide dog. I'm, I'm trying to get a, a replacement dog. The driver pulled up to the curb, saw me with my white cane, took off. I had texted him and let him know that I had a cane, where I was standing, where I was wearing. He left anyway. I wasn't able to get to court. I had to apologize to my boss. I had to apologize to the judge. So I tried talking to Uber. Uber did nothing about it. I talked to Uber corporate. Uber chose to ignore me. I'm like, okay, I want to bring this up to the media. So they interviewed me. And in the interview, I told the, the reporter, my goal with this interview is not to malign Uber because there's a lot of great drivers out there. But it is to make the public know what Uber drivers cannot do and what this driver can't get away with. Sure enough, Next day, I got a letter from Uber apologizing, saying that that driver specifically is going to get the training that they require and to ensure that other drivers got the training. Now, I know this is going to happen again, 
but a lot more good got done by them understanding what they are required to do versus just telling them that I was going to either never ride again or that they were a terrible company or something like that. Because I think more um, we're able to work through our issues, the better off we're going to be as a whole. So I don't mean to rush anybody. We have about five minutes left in this call from the time we set aside. So if anybody has any final questions, please feel free or uh, feel free to reach out to the email address for a seminar in the future. And if you have any questions or if you would like for me to address your organization or if I can be of any help when it comes to talking about these issues, I'd be more than happy to. Can I make um, just two final comments? Go for it. So here in El Paso, Texas, I have been very, very active on um, our city um, accessibility advisory committee. And what I would suggest to anyone who can is to reach out to your city and see if you have an ADA coordinator. Our city does, I'm not sure if all do, but I, I know that our city does and um, I, I know him fairly well. And when I feel like something needs to be modified in, in the public or in the community or bus stops or anything such as that, I contact him because he is my advocate in this city. Um, another thing, it totally just went out of my head though. Um, <laughs> one second, ADA. We can come back to you if you like. Does, does anybody else have any yeah, other Yeah, I, I can't remember my other comment at this second. No? Okay. <laughs> well, I, I want to, once again, I want to sincerely thank everyone that, that came. I do want to apologize once again to those who weren't admitted till later. Uh, I know I appreciate you showing up, and I'm sorry that Zoom did not alert me to you being here. This is being recorded, so you will receive the recording so you can hear to the entire conversation. I want to thank also those who put out the word again. Uh, I just came up with this idea because I, as a lawyer and as an advocate, I just, it frustrates me to no end when I know that there's ways to solving issues that are not necessarily have to be done legally, but also just to have a conversation. A lot of the problems we face in today's society is just a lack of being able to talk to each other and address some of the problems we have. And I appreciate the ability to be able to do that. And if my knowledge of the law can help others understand what their rights are better, if it can help them understand what protection they're afforded, then that's all I need as far as payment is concerned. And I know that it's worthwhile to do because the more people are doing better, the more people are knowledgeable, the more they advocate for themselves and others, then the less issues we all face, then I think the better world as a whole we are. And we're all gonna face issues, we're all gonna face adversities, but how we handle them is how it defines who we are and what we are. And so I sincerely hope that this conversation, along with the text packet you have provided, has helped you in some way. And I really hope you're able to use a text packet if you ever need to, if you face any adversity or any issue. 
like I said, that email is going to stay open. So if anybody has any questions, any thoughts um, about this, I'll be more than happy to answer them. Or if anybody wants to, like I said, want me to talk to an organization or a group, I am more than happy to, to make that happen as well. But thanks so much, everybody, for showing up. And I don't know if we're going to make this an annual saying or not, but I appreciate a good start. And uh, well, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks, Thank James. you very much. Oh, I, uh, I remember my last comment. I'm so sorry. It's back to Uber and it'll be really quick. You do not have to be a member of the NSB to report a access issue to the NSB. They do have a lawsuit out against Uber and they stay on top of that. So if you have any issues with access to an Uber, you can go on and report that, and it does not matter if you are a member or not. Okay, there you go. All right, folks, thanks so much again.